I'm Zach. I'm a musician, a former worship leader. I helped destroy a mega church. We're going to talk about that today. And as a result, I'm not really sure what I believe anymore. This is Dave. I'm an occasional preacher, a movie buff, a Bible nerd, and believe it or not, I'm still no, 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 an no, evangelical. No, 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 Dave. Barely. <sighs> this is Veterans of Culture Wars. of Culture Wars is the Evangelical Explainer podcast talking about the beliefs, history, culture, and personal stories from evangelical Christianity. We welcome all people to the discussion, whether you are a believer or not. And uh, Zach, we have a very special show today and uh, a special guest that we are very excited about. Yeah, uh, we're gonna we're gonna be speaking today with Jessica Johnson. She is a professor of religious studies at William and Mary College. And uh, she notably wrote a the book about Mars Hill Church uh, and Mark Driscoll called Biblical Porn, Effect, Labor, and Pastor Mark Driscoll's Evangelical Empire. Welcome to the show, Jessica. Good to see you again, Zach. Yeah, so we met while you were researching uh, for your book, and uh, you reached out to me uh, because of my involvement with a website that was uh, collecting and sharing people's stories of their time inside Mars Hill who had chosen to leave. And uh, it was a helpful tool for people still there to recognize their story and think about getting out. Yeah, absolutely. It was really lovely for you to talk with me at that time. I remember one of your first questions to me was, are you a Christian? Maybe because I ordered it there immediately. I'm not really sure. <laughs> we, met, we, met at, we met at the brew pub down by, it wasn't by the ball field at that point? Uh, yeah, by by uh, Century Link uh, field where the Seahawks play, uh, uh, Elysian, Elysian Fields. That's right. That's yeah. right. Yeah. Yeah, I, I don't think I would have been asking you that question as, a, as any sort of litmus test of determining how open I was going to be. But I, I think it probably was more of a, okay, how much do, can I assume you inherently understand about my life and, and mindset versus how much explaining needs to be done? And, and I don't, I don't know. I, I was, I was really interested in what you were doing. And so you, you were attending Mars Hill as research, uh, while not a believer, for a fair amount of time, right? A long time, actually, two years. Yes. So I was there from 2006 to 2008, and I actually stopped attending around the time of the present princess. So I attended those sermons, and then after that, I was no longer there. But I was going to 
other events as well, um, primarily revolving around gender and sexuality. So there was a yeah. redeeming female sexuality seminar that was very well attended. Um, and as you know, everything was very gender segregated. So right. um, there was one co-ed event that I attended early on. I want to say that was very early on in my starting to attend. So maybe in fall or winter so maybe 2006 fall or 2007 winter that was a co-ed gender and sexuality event actually um and it was i mean that was the title basically mm. and i remember that feeling of just wow the way that people are interacting between men, men and women and a lot of younger folks were there um was very careful <laughs> you know yes. it was very careful mm. um yeah, you know, yeah. and also that kind of meat market market vibe was also there. So it was kind of that both and situation where it was like, you know, Mark was always professing, you know, well, just, you know, throw a rock, look around, there's women everywhere, you know, you're going to find some single lady to get married to in the church, you know, if you just look around and try. Um, so there was always that kind of feeling. Um, and I noticed that right away when I started going, um, even just to those services. Um, during services, though, I would say that there were primarily like people in groups, you know, or families together or couples together. Um, but definitely during a lot of the, that particular event, you know, the gender and sexuality event um, that was co-ed, that vibe was definitely there. Um, and then, then there was also a woman's workshop that I attended where Grace spoke and a bunch of um, pastors' wives actually spoke. Redeeming. Grace was was Mark Driscoll's wife. Uh, if, if oh, we could back yeah, it up, I'm probably not been using first. I still think of them that way. It's so yeah, funny, yeah. You know? Totally uh, understandable. I I'm going to give a few bullet points of Mars Hill history just for the people listening that aren't already intimately familiar. Uh, Mars Hill Church was a mega church uh, based out of Seattle, Washington, that uh, launched in 1996 uh, by pastor mark driscoll and and two other pastors one of whom left after the after a few years i think he went down to tacoma um the other uh did went out of ministry um it grew to about fourteen thousand people by 2014 um that was across multiple campuses several states and uh there was a, a big breaking point in 2007, where the the church bylaws, the the rules that govern how a church behaves and how the employees of the church have different levels of, of power and, and influence for church decisions and all that, they were changed, essentially consolidating power uh, for Driscoll uh, and a few others. It gave indefinite, you know, essentially lifetime terms uh, uh, in office for these executive elders. I think the executive elder language was was a thing established in those bylaws as well. Um, that led to a certain amount of fallout uh, and and friction in the church. A couple pastors that were well loved got got uh, axed as a result of their dissent about these, which led to bigger issues. Things were rocky for a while, and it kept growing and growing still. Um, and then in 2014, news came out that Mark's 2012 book, Real Marriage, had that the, that the church had used 
$210,000 of tithe money to use a marketing agency to do bulk buys of the book in order to uh, get it on the New York Times bestseller list. Uh, and later that year, uh, Mark was removed from the church planning organization that he'd founded, Acts 29. Uh, he was removed from active preaching by uh, one of the groups of, of elders at the church. And uh, as they were putting together recommendations for how to move forward with him and restore him back into leadership in some capacity. Uh, he instead in October, October 14th of 2014, he resigned. He announced that he and his wife uh, had both separately heard from God saying that a trap had been set uh, and that they needed to get out. <laughs> and that. yeah, so they left the church. He, he ended up like, buying the mailing list and a bunch of resources and things, uh, skipping down to Arizona and starting a new church there and uh, changing up some of his theology in the process as well to sort of reinvent himself as something more of a prosperity pastor. Um, so that that's sort of a rough outline. And, and I attended from 2000 to 2009. Um, so it was like 200-ish people when I started. Um, and then by the time I left, I'd already been going to one of the satellite smaller locations. Um, so I wasn't there when it collapsed, but I had a lot of connections with, with people that had been there and stayed there for a long time that led to the formation of, of that website I was talking about uh, earlier with a couple other friends. And we, we also... Uh, dug into the Wayback Machine and and found the archive of the the old uh, Mars Hill uh, message board where he had posted a bunch of ridiculously inflammatory stuff uh, under a pseudonym uh, headlined "Pussified Nation," uh, where he talked about all the ways that women are hurting this country and men need to I don't know grab the world by the nuts and claim it back for men or something i i can't i can't remember i i have muted the words mark driscoll on twitter and i have forgotten a fair amount of the things about him uh just just as 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 a way to go forward myself Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. because that was years and years of the the formative period of, of my life that formed much of my identity that i'm still trying to uh remake in, into the post marzell identity yeah and that's uh i think you know that's necessary probably for i would say your own personal growth but it was interesting i was reading the article last night about um somebody who had reviewed uh favorably jessica's book and they were talking about how you know it's such an important work because seattle seems to have moved on and kind of forgotten about mark driscoll and and that's not necessarily a criticism because a lot of people might be in Zach's boat. They just need to in order to move on and kind of just forget about what happened there. But Jessica's book is such an important work in capturing the history, uh, you know, not necessarily just the history, but but some of the things that were taught that are so damaging and that and that hurt so many people. Um, so Jessica, coming back around to you, um, 
would you, um, can you share with us just your personal thoughts on faith? And then from there, um, I think you uh, were on site researching Mars Hill from 2006 to 2008, how you first heard about Mars Hill and, and came to be involved in wanting to research Mars Hill and kind of find out what was going on there. Yeah, absolutely. So as far as faith is concerned, I do work in religious studies, um, but I'm not a believer. Um, I have studied a lot about religions um, writ large, and I think the one that's most connected with me, to be honest, if I had to, to choose one, <laughs> you know, um, is, is Buddhism, and particularly uh, Mahayana Buddhism. I was studying it when I was living in Japan, and that might be one of the reasons that it really connected with me at that time. It was a way for me to actually um, become more involved in my cultural experiences there and really understand the place and the people better. Um, and I really, really got into meditation. Um, and, and I was on retreats and doing things along those lines for some time and even beyond um, when I moved back to Seattle. And that's perhaps one of the reasons that I actually became really interested in Mars Hill too. Um, and I can backtrack to that in a minute, but um, I started attending in 2006 because I was actually doing my dissertation, dissertation research on same-sex marriage politics and looking at both sides of the issue for and against and trying to actually, my purpose was to see, you know, to look for connections between these polarizations um, and trying to think about culture war politics differently um, other than for and against terms. And I actually saw Mars Hill as some channel into that project in that light, um, simply because at least from the pulpit and some of the early things that I was reading, um, Mark Driscoll was um, talking about, oh, I'm not a Jerry Falwell, you know, our big issue is not same-sex marriage and its legalization. Of course, we think homosexuality is a sin. Of course, that's a closed hand in the, the Mars lexicon issue for us. Um, however, that's not going to be our issue, right? Um, and because we're in Seattle, we want to embrace, you know, the culture here. And, and so, you know, when I first started attending, I heard about it, I believe from a professor who was saying, and this was just when the ballot location had become kind of, kind of the hub, you know, the central location. And, and he said, well, a lot of young folks are attending this place. You know, you may want to check that out. And once I sat down, um, I remember before Mark even started preaching, he told this joke about Talladega Nights or from Talladega Nights about, uh, you know, that there's that, that uh, joke that Will Ferrell gives that's about his smoking hot wife. Thank you, little baby Jesus, for my smoking hot wife. And, what, and so Mark says that before the sermon starts, okay? <laughs> in the Crystal House. And I remember it wasn't just the joke itself, although that was something. Um, and everybody laughing was also really baffling to me. I was raised a Catholic, so I did have some experience with going to a church, right? Um, at least what my understanding of church was at that point in time. But, um, but I was no longer practicing Catholic, and, and I'd never really been at a mega church before. And to my mind, Mars Hill at that point, especially given the size of that location, definitely spoke to that. Um, but anyway, Mark went and he went, it was, it was like the motion of slapping his wife's ass on stage from the pulpit. And Whoa, I don't remember that at all. End of that joke. 
And that was stunning to me. <laughs> I mean, yeah. that motion and the laughter it generated in relationship to what I was seeing at a church for the first time before he even starts sermonizing, I was hooked. I mean, I thought to myself, okay, here's this guy who's saying he's not, he's not Jerry Falwell, you know, same-sex marriage is not going to be the issue. They're not going to protest like other churches are in Seattle. The politics in general, they didn't really ever come out and declare a, a, a side of, no. a, of a political debate. No, I think no. that they were always known as, as culturally liberal, theologically conservative. Yeah, exactly. And it, exactly. Right. it was like a, a camouflage masking. Because I think if you attended the church and you listened to Mark enough, you'd know what his position was on things. Absolutely. Absolutely. But that was what was really interesting to me is I was like, this is a different way to think about evangelical sexual politics, right? Hmm. Rather than just, again, going back to the culture where war stuff for or against terms, right? So I was like, okay, this is really sexualized doctrine. This is a really sexualized space that I made <laughs> in the church. <laughs> so, so that was that was pretty much what grabbed me. Um, but it was, you know, but after that, it was a really, I mean, painfully, to be honest. So I, I resonate with Zach in the sense of like needing some space from the project, to be honest with you. I was happy to leave Seattle um, when I took this job um, a year ago, to be honest. I needed mm -hmm. to get space, not just from the book and its itself, but also just from the, the publicity afterwards, the interviews I was giving. Talking with you all is great now. I realized that like I've had that time to kind of recoup a little bit, but I was really um, ensconced in it for some time to the point where I started to feel pretty beat up by the doctrine itself, even as a non-believer, even as somebody who is not theologically invested Mm -hmm. um, there was a way that I was culturally, and again, in an embodied sense, invested, right? Beyond my capacity to really understand that. And that's a storyline in the book. Um, you know, so I tell that story about Mark slapping on the stage because not only was it stunning to me at the time and the laughter was stunning to me at the time, but it really kind of encapsulated for me, like my embodied involvement in that space right and with those people even before i got to interview anybody um the laughter was really key the it was very key the he, he he was sort of half preaching half doing a stand-up routine mm -hmm. uh which is this is one of the many reasons why a lot of us ex mars hill people when when trump came on the scene nationally we saw so many parallels between him and Mark, but I think it also allowed a lot of people such as myself to dismiss a lot of the, the more outlandish things that Trump would say as we, we would talk about it in terms of all oh, crazy uncle Mark. Right. And like, eventually like crazy uncle Mark's, you know, antics that, you know, you see your crazy uncle just uh, on uh, Thanksgiving or something, you can deal with it. But when the crazy became the totality <laughs> <laughs> like okay okay this this is just mark right and well and then i mean you know i mean not to take that analogy too far but the crazy uncle can also be the one who abuses right? absolutely right? Right. I mean, right you know i i can't i don't want to go too far with that but right i mean molestation within the family i mean it kind of felt like that right 
I mean, I, and, and when we're talking about Trump, you know, and I think um, going back to Dave's comment, um, and thank you for reading that nice review of my book, but, um, you know, people since the election, the most recent election, have talked about the Seattle bubble. And that's dangerous, you know? I mean, I can totally see how that's a seductive way to think about Seattle, especially now that I'm in the South, actually. Although Richmond arguably is its own kind of, you know, Virginia is now blue, it's not even purple. But, <laughs> but you know, but in, at the same time, you know, it's really um, not, it's not good thinking to think that you're so separate from the rest of the nation, that you're so separate from, right, other things that might be going on, culturally speaking, in your own neighborhood, <laughs> you know, yeah. in your own family, going back to, you know, that, that you're just not aware of, right? And so it's Absolutely. Really important to stay, you know, attuned to that. I think. Yeah, it was a it was a pretty big eye opener. Um, I don't remember exactly when it happened, but when when Jordan Peterson came to town and like sold out a yeah. large venue here, and I have one. I don't I don't know if you have much insight into this, but that's another guy that I feel like Mark paved the way in Seattle for people being open to that sort of a message. Oh, absolutely. His, his is sort of a a, a non religious take on the men need to be men and grow up and get out of your parents' basement and lead, be in charge of your family and your wife and all that. So I guess I'm wondering if you find more of a through line from Mark to a Jordan Peterson or Trump or just both in different ways. Yeah, I think both in different ways. I think Trump performatively speaking in terms of, of what you were describing earlier with the jokes and the kind of hyper-masculinity, hyperbolic ways of performing masculinity. So performatively speaking, I think um, Driscoll was a lot more, or is more along those lines. Peterson, I actually attended one of those events when Peterson was in town. And I was- Actually in Seattle? Did yes. you actually see him in Seattle? Yeah, wow. in Seattle, exactly. It was um, a large venue, as I recall. I, I know- um, I. I knew ex Mars Hill people that were psyched to go. And I was like, didn't you learn anything? <laughs> but it was such a different kind of performance. So performatively speaking, I would say that Peterson was banal. I mean, he was boring. You know, <laughs> like people would laugh at things. And so when people would laugh at Mark's jokes, I was like, okay. And you know, Mark always compared himself to Chris Rock and talk about how like that was the way he learned how to preach was watching a lot of Chris Rock stand up, right? So. But with Peterson, it was a lot more of this very dry, very um, monotone. I mean, he's a professor and he, I've seen his videos because I was interested in writing a little bit more about him. Um, and so I have like a bunch of notes and I, I, I watched a bunch of his lectures. And when I'm in the classroom, it's very interactive. He just talks at his students. Right. So that's how he would perform. You know, when I saw him in Seattle, that's how he performed. He was just he's kind of walking around the stage very slowly, talking very methodically. Um, and it was very boring. And so when people would laugh at what he said, I was always dumbfounded. I was like, how is that funny? Like, how is that even remotely? So, so for, so in terms of his, his speaking on masculinity, for sure, there's a, there's a very direct line there, I think. But, but in the terms of performance, I was actually pretty baffled by that. Mm -hmm. um, and it was actually in some ways as disturbing 
you know, to me as an audience member to see the reactions among people that I was sitting with, you know. Um, and it was a very libertarian vibe too, right? So when I talked to people around me, it was a lot of people professing that like, you know, the local politicians were all socialists and, you know, that kind of thing. Right. Um, the, the libertarians I knew at Mars Hill were the ones most excited to go. See exactly. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. But it, it is me, interesting, um, though, that sorry, that, that thinking back on when I first started going to Mars Hill, I think he was presenting himself in a bit more professorial manner. He was mm -hmm. still doing a lot of jokes, but I firmly recall telling people, wow, I'm going to this church now where the pastor says he's reading a book a day. He's he's relating the passages in the Bible to sociology, psychology, history, art, culture, music, film. Like he's bringing in all of these sources and different parts of life and connecting them and threading that. And I thought that that was fascinating because most churches I've been to, it's just, you know, anecdotes about their kids, <laughs> which Mark definitely moved on to. But, uh, you know, when I started going, his, his oldest daughter, his oldest child was, was like five or something. Um, so there weren't as many anecdotes there. But I, I, I really did think of him as more intellectual than, than what he went for a little bit later. Yeah, I, I think even when I was there in 2006, I still got that feeling too, Zach. I mean, mm. you know, he would just, even though he was still giving the crass jokes kind of thing and doing that shtick and stand-up, um, you know, I was impressed. He, he wasn't, I mean, he's an intelligent guy, you know, and he did not seem as you know, that whole vibe around like, oh, academics are just elitists wasn't really ensconced culturally in the same way it is today. Yeah, um, I agree with so, that. Totally. You know what I mean? So even though, you know, I still heard some jokes about, well, especially when it came to women, you don't need all those letters after your name. <laughs> you know. Um, and I remember sitting there going, uh, you know. But at the same time, you know, it wasn't as dramatically, you know, uh, yeah, crass or calloused against intellectualism. And again, that was his way of appealing to the culture. I mean, I remember him saying, people read books here, you know, we, we, he wanted to appeal to UW students, to University of Washington students. He wanted to appeal to, to um, SPU students. I mean, he considered those, you know, like, proselytizing grounds, right? I mean, I, I remember that he did some debates with professors at SPU, if I'm not mistaken, like in the early yeah, days. Yeah, that's while I was attending the SPU. Yeah. I, I went to like the the, the Bible study in, in, in an on-campus house that, that he led that uh, SPU uh, kicked him out after a little <laughs> while. Exactly. I, that's how, I remember hearing about that, actually. But And they had a... Oh, sorry. sorry. Yeah, they had a campus on the University of Washington. Uh, probably later on, I started going there in 2008, and yeah, it was maybe a year or two later. I think they opened that campus. They actually had a building near the University of Washington campus for that purpose. Yeah, Seattle's a very highly educated city, and he was definitely trying to appeal to that crowd. There's um, probably something about the the type of people that initially he was trying to attract to Mars Hill were culture makers, mm -hmm. uh, young artists and musicians Absolutely. and young men with big earning potential a few years out uh, that then as the, the church was able to use their free labor to, to form its, its marketing, it's, you know, 
its sense of music and iconography um, as, as the church grew and brought in, you know, families and more upper income folks. I, th I think uh, he probably went more towards the stand-up and away from the more intellectual stuff that had attracted the artists and such. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I think, um, yeah, there was, there was several comics that he talked about uh, trying to remember the name of the, the redheaded guy, Jim. Uh, Gaffigan. Gaffigan. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I think, I, I, I mean, he took word for word bits from, from comics that he liked, I think. And, and, you know, eventually he didn't even really prep sermons, right? He just had a topic and would go up and wing it for an hour and a half, literally an hour and a half. <laughs> like, yeah. like he had incredibly long sermons. <laughs> yeah. To me, it kind of seemed like he had maybe four or five pocket sermons because he claimed to be what's called the expository preacher where he opened the Bible and supposedly go line by line. And he did that kind of sometimes toward the beginning of a sermon where he'd open it up, read a few scripture verses, maybe make a few comments, but then he would, like Zach said, just kind of launch out into his own, you know, one of his branded sermons other than, you know, guys need to behave, uh, women need to submit, uh, self-righteous, uh, furrow-browed, you know, Pharisee type people. I mean, he had different uh, different sermons that he pretty much just incorporated into whatever verse he happened to be talking about, it seemed like. Right. Yeah. Can we go back to, um, I, I'm curious, uh, I, I think, Jessica, your approach is, is so interesting to me coming into an evangelical megachurch as an anthropologist and, and studying it scientifically and really you know, being open in a sense scientifically to what's going on and recording that. And it seems like to me, evangelicalism, you know, I, I had a Christian conversion experience in the evangelical church in 1994 when I was 14. If, you know, back then in the 1990s, it seems like evangelicals and sexuality was almost, it was kind of a taboo subject. And, and Zach has kind of talked about it a little bit on the show before how his dad would play like James Dobson tapes in the car, you know, on, on sexuality, just kind of, you know, it's kind of this awkward, awkward thing in the church for Christians to talk about. And people often link that back to Puritans and just kind of being there, being prude or being ashamed and I even, I remember going to a Promise Keepers in the kingdom when the kingdom existed in the mid-1990s. And even there, I, I don't remember much talk about sexuality other than, you know, guys should be faithful to their wives and love their wives and that kind of thing. It seems like when Driscoll came along and kind of this generation of preachers, there was a lot more just in your face and he would um, really to talk about sexuality in a more open way, but also um, the evocation of shame and, and misogyny and holding, you know, um, the whole putting women in their place kind of thing, which was his message. Um, did you come up with that in your research too? Was there maybe a shift in how the average evangelical church in the 80s, 90s, and then was there this shift kind of in the early 2000s with this new generation of preachers and approaching sexuality? Yeah, I think there was a style of preaching too that shifted. I think thinking about it in terms of media and styles is also important because in, in the 1970s, even like Tim LaHaye and his wife were writing these books that were like, 
the evangelical joy of sex, right? Mm -hmm. The message in some ways was very similar, right? And they even had, you know, little diagrams and things of that nature. Um, But once Mark came on the scene and that that period of time, I'd say in the the mid 90s to 2000s, early 2000s, um, there was an increase. Yeah, there was a shift um, and more acceptability. And I would say it was more a, a cultural shift that wasn't just about sex necessarily. It was also about, you know, being able to kind of, as Mark was preaching himself, kind of, kind of um, play with taboos a little bit, you know, play with vulgarity a little bit, play with the jokiness a little bit more than, you know, pastors would have in the past, right? So, so the whole puritanical kind of, you know, it's not like it went out you know, exactly in terms of the message, but it, the messaging changed such that then there was a more openness to being able to talk about sex and people really liked it. I mean, you know, what he would say is I keep drawing people in because they want to hear me preach about this stuff because of the very experiences you're describing as a kid. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think there was a shift for sure. It's not like it, it was totally new. But I also think that media had a really big impact in terms of the way that shift happened because cultural boundaries started to become a bit more blurry too between the evangelical and the secular, right? Mm, Uh, That's that's a theme in my book as well, right? Where, you know, to attract a greater audience, right? To um, evangelize, then there needed to be kind of this more savvy approach to um, the technological, and of course, evangelicals have always been good. Again, they've been good about this historically speaking, <laughs> radio, right? Radio, yeah. TV, etc. But when it came to new media, um, you know, that was a terrain that then opened up a lot of different possibilities. And so what Zach was referencing earlier with the Pacified Nation thread on, on Midrash, right? You know, Mark was able to play with being anonymous, right? He was able to take on a character, and when you're able to do that, as we're seeing now, right, with new media, I mean, now that kind of mode of engagement has unfortunately siloed us into these different kinds of spheres when it comes to the way that we we respond to and create cultural content online, right? So, um, and unfortunately, it hasn't gone a very good direction in a lot of ways. Yeah, right. So, I mean, this is an early precursor to you know, trolling and to, to a lot of different forms of online abuse and harassment. Um, and, and so, you know, it was, it, was a, it was a shift that also took off in terms of media, I would argue. Um, but for sure, that all impacted what was going on in terms of that messaging. Um, and it opened up a lot more possibilities to play with those taboos. Mm-hmm. I feel like it was partially a, a conscious response to the awareness that most of the people in his church had had some experience with online porn uh, since that the internet basically came about in like 1994, 95 for most people, young people in the church. So, so early two thousands, a lot of people that as teenagers had been the first generation to access that. And so saying, we already know that you know about this stuff. So let's talk about it and talk about it in the manner that like, what does the Bible say about it? 
because uh, as as somebody that, w- that he would say that the Bible is inerrant and can be applied to all aspects of our lives, you know, he wrote a book on doctrine. He could say the Bible is perfect, and here's what it says about all this stuff, and you can trust that that's what it says about this stuff because I'm telling you, and I wrote a book called Doctrine, and I know exactly, you know, my interpretation of Scripture is Scripture, mm-hmm. and uh, so it was, you know, talking about specific sexual acts. Talk, you know, he's talking about like anal sex with his wife, you yeah, know, that was in real marriage. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and the, the peasant princess series was taking Saul of song of Solomon to basically be a, a bullet point list of, can I do this? Can I do this? Can I do this? Yeah. And then you combine that with this general teaching that um, men are constantly horny and that's why they need to get married because there's no positive sexual outlet for them until they're in a marriage and wives need to prevent that constant horniness from spilling out into bad areas by being there to constantly give them whatever they may need. Um, I happen to think that a lot of the, the sex talk that he was doing was uh, a purposeful outlet for his own sexual desires it, it, a, a way I, I think he got off on talking about that stuff in front of a, cr- a crowd of people um i, I think right. i you know I, I think he's a narcissist uh and i think that was part of his pathology is is really enjoying getting away with that in yeah. the name of Jesus. Oh, I was gonna say, yeah, the peasant princess. I, you know, because I started attending in 2008. I think that was 2009, and we we were talking a little bit before Jessica, where I think that was the last series that you heard as well. Mm-hmm. And what was interesting about that, there were other evangelical leaders, uh, in particular, in my mind, uh, John MacArthur, who heavily uh, criticized that sermon series. And really, anybody who's a Bible nerd or even people out there who uh, maybe no ancient Hebrew uh, that, that the Old Testament was written in, Mark completely butchered that book. I mean, you know, the eye of Hebron is not female genitalia, right? Like he completely, it's, it's certainly erotic poetry. Um, there's no doubt about that. And there's sexuality in there. But Mark took it to a whole new level where it's kind of this American porn type thing being imposed on on actually the scripture book and not that i'm a fan of john macarthur because he has his own issues but um yeah maybe we'll get into that on a future podcast actually Zach. but uh <laughs> but you know he did have a point where the the exegesis of figuring out you know just what is in the song of songs what it's actually saying Marcus we want to define that term for our listeners oh yes exegesis is um you're interpreting the bible you're looking at the original language as much as we can and the culture it was written in in order to um in order to preach a text and mark was pretty much just doing his own thing and going way off from where any biblical commentator or scholar what they would say about song of songs You know, I have right here a little bit of the Pussified Nation. Um, 
And just to read a little bit about this, I think people forget how extreme and just how horrible uh, this was. And I know, Jessica, you did a lot of interviews with, with people. Um, I know, obviously, you couldn't share their names, but it might be interesting just to read this. And then if maybe if you could share what some people have told you about, you know, have they been how they've been hurt by this, how um, trauma that they received from hearing these messages and and this stuff preached to them. And, and um, I'd, I'd like to say that so this this thread on the message board happened. It, it would have been fall of 2000 because I had just started attending the church. I, I went to Seattle Pacific University and about a month into going to college there, uh, pretty much every Sunday, folks were trying out new churches. And some friends took me to, to Mars Hill. They told me, ah, oh, the drummer of one of the bands you really like, he plays music there. And I was like, great, let's go. Um, but the guy that took me there, uh, a month or so later, I remember walking in his dorm room. He, he was on my floor in my dorm and, and he was reading something on his laptop. I was like, yeah, what you reading? He's like, I'm reading uh, an essay from my favorite local writer. William Wallace the second. Oh, no. oh my gosh. No. <laughs> and that was his uh, pseudonym. And on this that was my time. introduction to the Pussified Nation thread, which was very active at the time. Oh my god. Great introduction. <laughs> oh boy. So this says, quote, we live in a completely pussified nation. We could get every man real man as opposed to pussified James Dobson knockoff crying promise keeping homo erotic worship loving mama's boy sensitive emasculated neutered exact male replica evangeli fish evangelifish evangelifish sorry and have <laughs> a conference <laughs> have a conference in a phone booth it all began with Adam, the first of the pussified nation, who kept his mouth shut and watched everything fall headlong down the slippery slide of hell feminism when he shut his mouth and listened to his wife, who thought Satan was a good theologian, when he should have led her and exercised his delegated authority as king of the planet. As a result, he was cursed for listening to his wife, and every man since has been his pussified sit quietly by and watch a nation of men be raised by bitter penis envying burned feministed single mothers who make sure that Johnny grows up to be a very nice woman who sits down to pee, unquote. I, I will say I am 100% convinced that that, his, that is his attempt at writing Chuck Polinick prose. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah, the author Fight, of Fight, Fight, Club. Fight Club was a pretty big deal at the time, and Mars Hill was no exception. Mm-hmm. They like screened it there. That is yeah. that is exactly what he was trying to do. No, there were actually. I was told at one point there were actual Fight Clubs. Yes. Yes. Right? I, I have a friend that was in one. Yeah. You've got uh, to be kidding me. That's something I, I did not know. Yeah, I I don't recall if I was invited. I, I wouldn't have done it. I've never been in a fight. <laughs> I don't intend to get in one. Oh I was always, you know, if I got pushed against a locker, I could tell a joke and get out of it. Right. <laughs> yeah, oh, man. But just getting your research, I mean, just that this, I mean, this was the extreme of his message, but arguably, you know, he's probably one of the core things. He's referencing Genesis 3 and kind of putting his own um, twisted kind of 
misogyny and theological views upon it. And the people you've talked to, how how has this impacted them? How, how have people shared with you how this has really hurt them? How this has warped them? Because um, I think people hear this and probably probably chuckling at just how extreme it is. But but people were actually in this church. You know, women were in this church and they were they were believing this. And there were marriages that were affected uh, by men who believe this and believe they should behave in a certain way around their wife. And this led to a lot of destruction, a lot of ruined lives and a lot of pain. Um, can you share about some of those things that you researched and wrote about? That yeah, um, sure. I mean, here it's obviously also very gendered. And so I would start with the way that that would play out in marriages. Um, you know, that, Ma and I would call it masculinist, right? Yeah. I know that that phrase toxic masculinity is a thing. I, let's just talk about masculinity, okay? <laughs> that's very, that's a very masculinist, um, you know, diatribe. And so how that would play out in marriages is that wives who worked, for example, especially if they had children, wives who, um, you know, maybe were, perhaps not outspoken or aggressive, but assertive sometimes, um, or had their own opinions and vocalized them, or didn't always feel like they wanted to just listen to what their husband said and obey, felt deep shame about that and felt very, I mean, so much crying in, in some of these smaller group sessions that I attended around the way that women thought that they were not performing their gender role properly, right? And it really did come boiled down into those, those very hard categories of roles, right? Um, and then on the flip side with men, I think, you know, it was, there was also shame about not living up to the expectation of the manly man, you know, the, the very masculine, I need to have sex at least once a day. I mean, Mark would, profess that over yeah. and over to be a real man you'd have you know you need to have sex once a day and I mean how many times did I hear about breasts at that church I mean you know it's just like you know only dead men and blind men and gay men don't want to see breasts all the time you know I mean that was a common thread and so if men didn't have that kind of drive or if their women didn't submit to them then that was also a problem right so you Absolutely. have Constant, yeah. constant. It definitely messed with me. Yeah. I, yeah, Zach, I'm sure. You, I mean, from first firsthand experience, you can speak to this, I'm sure. Yeah, I, I remember him often saying, ah, oh, man, I, I have the best wife because she knows if it's been more than 48 hours since, since I have orgasm, then I'm going to get screwy. I'm going to, something's going to be off. And she knows that to, to, to maintain that level for me, to keep me from a, a worse version of myself or something, essentially. Um, I, I remember taking my dad to one of the men's retreats. And when, when Mark could speak just in front of men, he could be more direct uh, and more crass. And that, and that's, I, I specifically remember him saying that uh, masturbation is a homosexual act. Mm -hmm because there's no woman involved. And I remember <laughs> my dad sitting next to me, just looking at me like, 
uh, what? (laughs) 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 And I remember like the split recognition of that is like, is he saying that he does that a lot and doesn't want to talk about it because he doesn't want to think he's gay? Or is he just saying that's the craziest thing I've ever heard? This guy is nuts. Uh, <laughs> and, and I didn't really want to think about that much further. Um, but yeah, ab- absolutely. Uh, I, I felt that that his definition of masculinity as, as somebody who was being biblically masculine uh, was was an idea that, you know, once you're married, you know, you've been holding, you've had this pent up sexual, uh, uh, not aggression, but <laughs> that pent up sexuality for, for all this time. Once you're married, boom, go for it constantly, every day, multiple times a day. That's what guys are like. And it didn't take long for me as a married person to be like, that's not what I'm like. Is there a problem with me? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So yeah, that, that, that would come up a lot in conversations I had. And, and then on the flip side, you know, any time porn came up, it was just, you know, I must be an addict, right? Right. Because that was also, you know, so it was, it's that dualism that was really fascinating to me is on the, on the one hand, right? I mean, if you even glance at porn and porn could be everywhere, it could be on a Cosmo cover in the supermarket, right? I mean, you know, it could be anywhere, oh, the, the waitress who, who serves you coffee in the morning, right? I mean, you could sexualize her. I mean, it, so you, so constantly he was talking about the sexualization of women. At the same time, he's saying, if you look at porn once, you're going to be addicted. So again, was, don't objectify women, objectify your wife. Exactly. Exactly. So yeah. wife as your porn star, right? I mean, yes. you know, and, and in those so, specific words. Yes. Yes. I mean, Talk about damaging. I mean, I, how could you possibly, how could anybody on either? And that was part of the thing for me is I was like, this is harming both people in this, right? This is harming both the men and the women in this situation, in this relationship, right? Um, and that was really important for me to hit upon because I didn't want it to just be, oh, only the women are getting harmed here, right? I could see, and I and, and certainly, I could already see before I talked to people and then that was affirmed and then just, you know, kind of shaded out in more detail how men were getting affected by this too, right? And so that was, I think it's really, and that's why I don't like the toxic masculinity component so much, just because I think that, you know, we're all in this together in terms of these constructions and, and how they play out in the world. And, and it's better for us to kind of work together on that as opposed to feeling oppositional about it at all times, right? And that opposition was really set up by the way that Mark would talk about gender roles and sex. So um, I was working very hard at trying to combat that, right? Like, so for example, I didn't hit, you know, I kept reading things about, oh, complementarianism as a theology, as a doctrine, as a problem, right? And that's the problem here. And I'm, I'm not saying that it wouldn't be helpful to be able to have women in leadership roles. And, and actually women were in leadership roles, frankly, <laughs> at the church, but we, that's a different conversation at the book. At like the deacon level and yeah, yeah, definitely never an elder or a pastor. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, they exactly. spelled it out very specifically saying the Bible says this, you know, elder specifically can only be men. And exactly. we're going to define elder as anybody that preaches, anybody that like gets a salary, essentially. But then he would have his wife up on stage at the times where he's talking about, again, this kind of 
pornified atmosphere of, you know, women are being sexualized all the time. And there's his wife taking questions with him about what can we do in the bedroom, right? So, it, I mean, I there were men who told me like, you know, Grace was sexualized, you know, and that took, you know, after the church kind of folded for, for, for the men that I was talking to to come out and say that. But, but, you know, it was a thing that was happening. I mean, it was just in the atmosphere, it was something that was being done actively. Um, but in, anyway, so my point was initially that while I'm not necessarily a fan of complementarianism, it wasn't, in my case, it wasn't my place to say this is the problem or this mm -hmm. theology is wrong, right? Mm -hmm. um, as a cultural anthropologist, that's not my investment. And I do think that there's something helpful about that in a certain way, right? Where, you know, if I was doing only theology, I, I could then say, well, that's bad theology. But in my case, I was more like, how are men and women both getting hurt by this? Let's not just say, okay, it's, it's, it's unequal and stop. That's the problem, right? How is this playing out on the ground such that men are adversely affected too, right? Um, and I think that's, at least for me, a more um, um, positive way to come at a problem, right? So that again, it's more about let's work on this together as opposed to this person or this doctrine or um, this kind of power dynamic is so hierarchical that there's no way to think around that hierarchy if that makes any sense, right? Um, so right. I, so I was very invested in that. And again, that was just affirmed in, in the men that I spoke with and how they were also harmed by this. So thanks for that question. One of the, I think one of the prominent kind of infamous examples of Mark's shame that he would put on people, of course, was the comments about Ted Haggard. Mm -hmm. um, and Ted Haggard was the pastor of New Life Church in Colorado Springs, Colorado. And for our listeners, that's kind of a hotbed of evangelicalism, at least the religious right or the very conservative end, because of course that's where Focus on the Family with James Dobson is located as well. And uh, there was a documentary, uh, Friends of God, a road trip with Alexandra Pelosi, who's Nancy Pelosi's daughter. She's a filmmaker and she made it, uh, I think it debuted on HBO in January, 2007. She actually interviews Ted Haggard. There's a scene in Friends of God, a road trip with Alexandra Pelosi, the documentary with Ted Haggard. He's outside his church with his elders and they're literally talking about how Christian elders like really satisfy their wives. Like they're really good in bed and they're, they're you know, they're talking to uh, Alexandra Pelosi about this. And this documentary was made right around the time. So it was probably shot in 2006. They actually have words up on screen that Ted Haggard uh, was caught in a sex scandal involving a male prostitute, paying a male prostitute for sex and for methamphetamines. And so he had to resign from that church. And circling back around to Mark Driscoll, Driscoll publicly shamed Ted Haggard's wife saying that because he was indulging in this behavior, it's his wife's fault, essentially, because she, I think the comment was something like she let herself go or she wasn't available to him as much. So he went looking for this alternate sexuality in, in Mark Driscoll's view. Yeah. And yeah, do you I remember do that, Jessica, and kind of all that, that. follow-up? No, I do a really close reading of that blog post in my book, as a matter of fact, because it really struck me as well. Not, and, and this is also interesting how the emotional component too came into play here, 
not necessarily with Ted Haggard's situation, but in Mark's post, he was also talking about these emotionally needy single women who come to my office and need to talk about X, Y, or Z problems and how I have this, you know, male assistant who's with me all the time. Obviously the irony here is that, well, if you're gay, then you know, it's not really gonna help you. But anyway, I mean, if you're linking this to Haggard. But, um, but yeah, I, I, it was also interesting that, that even, and this is why, again, I found these relationships between men and women in general at that church very fraught, was that even if you were in conversation with somebody of the opposite gender, it seemed like it was sexualized even when it was not at all. I mean, not even remotely because even emotionally, you know, just asking somebody like, I remember one time, I think it's a story that I tell in the book briefly, um, asking somebody, but you know, there's a lot of changes happening at the main campus at Ballard um, as renovations were happening and the church was growing. And at one point um, the bookstore had shifted somewhere. And I didn't know where it was. I walked in the doors and I was like, oh, where's the, where did the bookstore go? So I walked up to somebody who was a service member and I, and a, a guy who I'd seen around before as a service member. And I was like, Hey, where's the bookstore? And he's like, Oh, I'll take you there. And he took my elbow and led me as though I was like, I mean, a blind person to the bookstore. You were the lost and sheep. Yes, yes, yes. There's that. There's that component. But he left the 99 customers. But the other part of it was that was fascinating to me is he didn't want to make eye contact with me. You know what I mean? It was yeah. very, even though there was that physical, again, going back to the physical gestures and this embodiment and how that played out in my book, you know, even though there was that kind of physical gesture, it wasn't a a hand on the shoulder. It wasn't a touch on the arm. You know what I mean? It wasn't, it was as sterile as it possibly, and, and, and um, pragmatic as it possibly could be in terms of leading the lost sheep, right, to the bookstore. Um, and, and there was no eye contact. There were no other pleasantries. There was, I mean, it was just like, boom. And this is like a welcoming person, right? This is like the, their job is standing at the main doors to welcome you. <laughs> you <know? laughs> so it was not a very welcoming atmosphere in that respect, even though, again, it had the vibe of that because it was nice and airy. There was artwork on the walls, right? And so it, it had an, a cultural appeal, again, that Mark always liked to talk about, like, oh, we want it to feel like you, you're walking into a coffee shop in Seattle you know, stuff went the bookstore and coffee, coffee, and, you know, you could borrow a Bible to read and, and that sort of thing. But so the space in, in its own way was welcoming and warm, but people themselves, unless you were already in a group, I always went alone, right? So as a single woman being alone, I felt like I had a target on my back at all times, you know? You I did. And in weird ways, right? Again, in this very sexualized kind of way that, that people either want to keep me at a distance or, or they were kind of like tentatively like, hmm, what's going on, you know? And so, so an, another story that I tell in the book that really struck me um, when I first started going, and it took me a few times to figure it out, but people were always looking at my hand for a wedding ring, right? They were looking at my, 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 the finger that you would have a wedding ring on to, to and the, those categories were also really, really strict. Singles or marrieds, 
I mean, every woman's group that I went to, that was a dividing line. And yeah. I wouldn't even profess whether I was a single or a married. And I would be put on the couch with all the other singles. <laughs> you know? I mean, it was weird. You know, it was really so. Ooh, well, I wish you would have told us this before the podcast, because if, <laughs> if, if you are single, then I don't know if we should be talking to you. <laughs> this could get dangerous very fast. Wait, Zach, are you accusing us of breaking the Mike Pence rule here? Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Well, that's it, but exactly. the Billy Graham rule, by way of Mike Pence, is that what they call it? Exactly. I, I am interested. Um, so, since you always were attending as an academic, you know, with arm's length from from the the charisma of of Mark, I suppose. Um, basically, every evangelical church will always say that uh, you know one of the best things you can do to witness to other people and and make converts is is to you know li live well and live in such a way where they're get, they're going to see that there's something different about you and they'll they'll want to ask what why are you so happy all the time why are you blah, 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 blah. what's different about you and you can say jesus he changed my heart do you want to meet him too i'm wondering if at any point attending the church you found yourself going i don't know man there's 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 something about this place. <laughs> Did it ever work? Or because you went with an ulterior motive the whole time, was the Holy Spirit never able to work on your heart? <laughs> okay, that's a great question. So on the one hand, absolutely not, no, because of the experiences that I just described to you. I mean, I really did never felt even comfortable in my own. I mean, I'm fine being a single woman, you know, but I never felt fine being a single woman in that space with mm -hmm. or in relationship with people from the church. Right. So that was always a that more than being. In fact, I talk about this in the book, too, more than being a researcher. I felt like that really, that made me distant in a weird way or kept me, kept me feeling a little bit different. Right. Not, um, not like unsafe though, more like, like you, no, like they were the researchers and you were the subject. When yeah. You, when you went in. Yeah. Sometimes. I mean, sometimes because there were always those, that series of questions, like how long have you been attending? Right. Um, and, and so the, the question of, of never came up about again, the, the marriage question, but that ring finger stuff was creepy. I mean, and it was women and men both. But so, and then on top of it, to answer your question, Zach, more directly, Mark was always talking about how Christians are depressed all the time. You know, like mm. it's depressing to be a Christian. Like I never really got that sense of joy. There was laughter at his jokes, but honestly, you know, the closest maybe... I don't know. I just never really, I was just always, I felt like the, I was impressed by the media and components in the ways that the church was growing and the way it was tracking young folks. And, you know, even when I started, you know, when I was teaching at UW, um, you know, my students would go there. So I was interested in that, you know, I was like, wow, okay. It is appealing to younger folks. I mean, it was doing all the things Mark said he wanted to do, attracting men, um, young men, but I personally never felt joy there, you know, right. I could see other people did, but I did it. And that's not because I was a researcher. That was just, I didn't, As a human you know, being, I didn't, yeah, I did not feel it, you know, well, I, 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 
I think the 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 way that Mark emphasized his personal take on Calvinism uh, certainly caused a lot of people to feel that way. There, where where the emphasis on, you know, humans are totally depraved, and right. we are essentially incapable of ever having a doing a good thing out of a pure motive. Yeah. That our heart is so black that we are always sinning in whatever we do even if it appears to be good and only through god changing our heart can there ever be any good to come from us and jesus is uh what prevents god's wrath from yeah. getting to us and he literally said god hates you yeah, <laughs> um, yeah in exactly. in sermons exactly uh, so i went to pastors and asked about that too i would ask like how is it because I was really trying to understand, you know, I mean, again, as an anthropologist. So I went, I specifically went to a pastor and asked, how could I feel loved if God's wrath is so emphasized over and over and over again, right? And I don't even remember the response because I just wasn't convinced, right? I, I was never convicted in that sense, right? But I will say this. Um, so I did try, I mean, I really did try, you know, it's not like I wanted to convert necessarily at the church, but I really wanted to understand like, what is the theological attraction to this? Like what, you know, um, not just the cultural, but on the flip I'll side. I'll say for myself, the attraction was the cultural yeah. and the theology came afterwards. I'd never attended a Calvinist church before, mm -hmm. uh, a reformed church. I, I always went to very charismatic uh, you know, Pentecostal churches growing up. And I did um, want to get something other than that because I, I never really had an emotional experience with God. I was always far more intellectual, which is why I say the more professorial mark at the beginning was interesting right. to me. Mm -hmm. But as a musician, as a creative person, I connected first to the music that was being done there, which was all original stuff by people that were in bands outside of church music that I appreciated their music already and they were making good stuff there. And so I think just bit by bit, I just came to sort of accept Mark's version of theology as being what Christianity is. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, I, I mean, arguably, at least in my book, I mean, that's kind of what I'm showing too. I mean, I don't say it in those terms, but but I'm definitely showing that the cultural attraction was there. And I, I did understand that, right? Um, I will say though, when it comes to Calvinism specifically, that notion of predestination, which again was always, you know, a little bit like, what, <laughs> you know, for me. Um, I, so, you know, the story for me, my personal narrative with the research is, you know, so I attended to till 2008 and then, you know, my dissertation was about something completely different. It was about same-sex marriage politics. So I had to write my dissertation. Um, and I really wrote a very long chapter about Mars Hill, <laughs> right? But, you know, that wasn't my dissertation. My dissertation was about all sorts of things around marriage politics, um, locally and nationally. And then I finished my doctorate in 2010 stuck around Seattle with a couple of teaching gigs through University of Washington, and then took off in 2011 for Miami for a visiting position there um, in gender, women, sexuality studies department um, at Florida International University. And in that year, trying to find a job, you know, academic, trying to find a job, trying to find a job, it's pretty much my MO is I'm constantly on the market. Don't mean that in a sexual way. <laughs> um, and so, so I, 
I'm on the market and I couldn't find anything. And it turned out I was sending out like signals to UW, like, hey, do you need me back for any reasons? Are there positions from, to be filled? Turns out there were. This is the fall of 2012, right? So I come back in the fall of 2012 and then I see Joyful Exiles, right? The, the blog that Paul Petrie started and you right. can get that story on him if you want. But, and, and so I saw that come out. I was like, oh my gosh, like people are starting to talk about this, you know? And, and before that, even though I'd had casual conversations with folks at the church just by being there, I never could formally interview anybody because I had to get Mark's permission to do that. And you can only imagine he did not want me talking to, you know, even though I was like, you have total rights to give me from, you know, like tell me who I get to talk to, blah, blah, blah. He wouldn't let me do it. Um, and I can talk about that, if, but, but anyway, so I come back in 2012, Joyful Exiles comes out. And then um, I remember Mike Anderson's post came out on his blog. And things started to unravel slowly but surely where people, more media stuff was coming out on The Stranger, right? Where people were talking to reporters. And then I started seeing these openings and, and I started realizing, oh my gosh, this is starting to fall apart in a way where I might actually be able to talk with people who would be interested in talking with me about their experiences, one. And two, I can get past um, the institutional review board um, that anthropologists and other people who do human subjects research it's called in social sciences um, have to get an institutional okay basically and at that point because things were kind of unraveling and people were more willing to talk to me everything kind of came together so to come back to this question of predestination I really felt at that time so this wasn't in the church but in my life like I am here to do this book, <laughs> it is now coming together. And I never understood predestination at all until that year. And then it took off for me. I mean, I was, I really felt like I was an evangelical for like a year. <laughs> like, like, before like, ordained, before the foundations of the world to write <laughs> it's 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 wild like we we can feel like like god's will is happening and all this stuff is predestined when it's a thing that personally benefits us and where we feel like we're playing a role in it yes. and i've been talking a lot about this lately because right now um when when we're this we're at, when we're recording this joe biden has been declared the president-elect uh trump is refusing to accept that uh, and many, 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 many evangelicals are also refusing to accept that. And I know I've talked to many that say, God chooses our leaders. <laughs> and, and that with predestination, if God chooses our leaders, then whatever the one is he's picked is the one that's going to win the election. Uh, and I, it's, it's so wild. They're like, well, you know, if, if Trump had won, then it would be clear that that was God's will. <laughs> but if Biden wins, then... Then, then it's God teaching us a lesson. Yeah. <laughs> you or, know, or he, he doesn't like him. He's putting him there to teach us a lesson. Well, then or, there's nefarious forces possibly at work too. Yeah, right? and so ultimately Trump's going to win because that's yeah. God's pick, and we yeah. need to do everything we can to create that reality. That if we really believed in predestination, we would know that that would be what happens anyways, regardless of what we do. Right. Exactly. Exactly. No, that play with agency and choice 
and, and fate predestination. That is fascinating. And it is amazing how you can. So in that sense, you know, again, going back to your original question, in that sense, I could understand there's a risk involved there too, right? If you really give over to that narrative of I'm here for a purpose and this is all happening for a reason and it's God's will, that is risky, you know? And there is there was something that was extremely exciting to me at that point. It wasn't just like, wow, this is great for me, but it was like, this is exciting and I'm in relation. And, and then also I was opening up all these relationships with folks like you, right? Like I was talking to people that I had seen on stage or I'd read their stuff or what, you know what I mean? Or I'd seen them play music. And, and suddenly like, I really felt connected to the church in a way that I never felt before in that space with the people involved. And I started really realizing how much the church had affected me on a level that I didn't realize. You know what I mean? So there yeah, was I know actually it's, it's actually really interesting. Yeah. The, the, the stated point of view of the site that I ran was we are people, you know, all the people that are sharing their stories here. We are people who feel that God brought us to Mars Hill and God brought us out of Mars Hill. And so both of those were, were acknowledgement of, of predestination, essentially yeah. um, saying you probably feel like God brought you there and, and that's okay to feel that. Mm -hmm. But we're saying that we also feel God brought us out of that and it's okay for you to get out of that too. And that can be God. Yeah, that was, that was joy for me. Like that was exciting in a joyful way. You know, I really, it's at that time that I really, and this was before I started really actively writing because that was very isolating, obviously. <laughs> you know, you're writing a book. But, but that being in communion with people during that period of time um, was special, you know. And, and, and like I said to you earlier, I mean, again, I don't want to say our experiences were the same because they certainly were not. However, I will say that I, when that book was done and the publicity for it was done and I got this job here, I really felt a sense of relief, even though I, I still miss Seattle in certain ways, of course. And like, you know, I was there for a while and um, I really needed to get some distance from yeah. that. I really did. So that whole thing about, yes, and you're now leaving, right? <laughs> you're, yeah, yeah. Like I really didn't feel like I left the church technically until I got to come to Richmond and to Virginia, you know, mm. like, and I, I, I mean, I think that a lot, it, I don't know, but some people. That's I, been what, two years? It's, yeah, like a year, actually. A year, that's I, all, okay. A time right now with. You know, yeah. <laughs> I'm like, oh, the timeline. But yeah, it's only been a year. I mean, I was, because I was doing publicity for the book for some time. Um, yeah. It's like a good year where I was talking about it a lot too. And I remember, I mean, I'm so thankful for this conversation, this opportunity. Thank you guys so much because those conversations were not joyful. They were like, I was really depressed. I was terrified about the reception of the book. I was terrified about telling people stories well. You know what I mean? Like there's a... Yeah sort of sense of responsibility and and um especially with ethnography but but arguably with any author right you're just you're you're worried about how people are going to receive your book and and then on top of that like i just felt like i don't want to talk about this anymore and people kept wanting to talk to me about it <laughs> you know because my book had just come out and i was like this is no fun i should be joyful i should be happy like i should feel a sense of accomplishment i did not feel any of that right i just wanted to like leave it behind for a bit 
I'll, I'll admit, I, I, I didn't read the book. I, I, I had expected that I would. And I, I think I felt the same sense of, of self-protection ab mm -hmm. about it um, that, that I was talking about with, you know, muting Driscoll on Twitter and things like that. I talking to you now, I, I think I may be able to, to, to circle back to it and read it. Now it would refresh my memory on a lot of things that I went through that I've forgotten since then, or, or, pushed aside but um yeah it would be interesting to now that i've had a bit of time away from that especially if you quote me i'd be scared to <laughs> to, to see what i was saying in my headspace thinks i know like e even though i'd okay. left the church even though i was i was you know actively helping people get out of there even though i had decided it was a cult I was I was still hanging on to a lot of the theology when I talked to you, and I I can remember pretty specifically trying to tell you sort of where I was at. Like, yeah, okay, like I'm done with complementarianism, but like, do I think it's a sin to be gay? I, I, I don't know yet, I and yeah. and I don't. <laughs> yeah. But at the time, I, that was a thing I was still holding on to, and and it was. And and that was I was just talking to my sister about this. She she um uh, she's been in a rela relationship with a woman for a long time, and uh, when she came out to me, I, I did not react well. And uh, I I there was a long time where I I I felt like everything Mark was saying about the 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 reason you know that that God wrote the Bible is that if you wrote it. He would agree with you on everything and there's a bunch of things in there and i'd say okay i you know i'm an i'm an artistic person with a lot of connections to the local artistic community musicians and all that of course i have a lot of lgbtq friends um but i understood that mark driscoll's uh explanations of the bible were what god was saying in the bible and it was one of those things where i just had to be like I guess that's proof that I didn't write it because <laughs> if I did, I'd be like, that's fine. But apparently that's what God says. So I guess I have to believe in, I and I wouldn't hold it against people. Um, but I wouldn't be accepting of, of their identity. And, and now it's like, you know, part of me is like, well, yeah, I've read explanations of the verses where, you know, Jesus yeah. didn't really say anything in that, but a bigger part of me, just like, yeah, even if it did say that, I don't care. Right. <laughs> like, I don't, I don't believe that, that the Bible is, is, is perfect. <laughs> and so I, if it did say that, I'd be like, well, it's wrong on that. Mm -hmm. Hey, Jessica, a uh, real quick question. Can you um, just define for the listeners what affective labor is? That's in the subtitle of your book, Affect Labor, yeah. and Pastor Mark Driscoll's Evangelical Empire. Yeah, absolutely. So um, referencing an earlier comment that Zach made, you know, that um, ability that Mark had or, or the, the savvy really that Mark had in terms of getting a lot of artists and musicians and, and um, people who are interested in learning tech and, and things of that nature into the church and asking them to promote or, or to produce so much through volunteer labor, right? Um, and so that's one component of it, right? Is, is the fact that there were so many, and of course, churches ask this of their people, right? This is not, this is not odd, but I was, I remember when I first started going there, just blown away 
by the amount of service hours that I understood people were putting into that place, right? Because it was also growing at that time, right? So 2006 to 2000, like there was starting to be that, that growth, right? The multiple campuses and such. And so affective labor is on the one hand, um, all this free labor that at first went into to growing the church and, and, and promoting the church, but then ultimately became about promoting Mark, really, um, and, and marketing him right, as the face of the church, which when I first started attending, even in 2006, he said he would never do. And then lo and behold, right? So um, so there's that component, all that volunteer labor, and, and, and it got abusive, right? I mean, it wasn't just your average, like, okay, I'm gonna do some service for the church because that's a good thing to do. It was more like people's lives, like people having to fund themselves and their families through like fundraising activities because they were doing so much time at the church for free, right? So, so I started hearing stories along those lines. The second part of that though, is the laughter, um, the gestures that like looking for the ring on the finger, um, Mark's gesture, like slapping his wife's ass, you know, like on the stage, um, you know, not physically, but, but uh, you know, gesturing that way. Um, and in all these other kinds of gestures, like that grabbing of the elbow, that's also affective labor. It's a form of embodied, right, understanding in a way that power operates through us such that we don't understand or, or we can't understand it in the moment, right? Um, we can't understand how we're being convicted of a certain power dynamic and a part of a certain power dynamic when those things are happening. So for example, when people are laughing at, at Mark's jokes, some of which were um, Islamophobic, you know, some of which were very masculinist, some of which were very sexualized and misogynistic. Um, you know, there's power in that. There's power in his ability, especially in a church environment, I would argue, right? When he's talking theologically, right, ostensibly, um, you know, that that's where spiritual abuse also happens. That's a part of the argument of the book, right? So when people are so invested, bodily speaking, in that kind of teaching, right, in ways that we don't understand, in ways that we don't know in that moment that we're invested. So even if you're saying, oh, yeah, that's just the crazy uncle and he's telling a joke, if you're laughing at it, you're giving yourself over to that still, right? Even if in your head you're saying, okay, but just like the Jordan Peterson thing, people laughing at him when he was being so boring on stage was disturbing to me because I was like, you're giving him so much power by the ways that you're investing in what he's saying when what he's saying is really banal and not interesting and not good teaching, right? So, so it's a way of, you know, there are all those emotions like shame, fear, um, certain forms of violence were actually physically embodied by people through those kinds of small gestures and small kind of micro fissures of power. Mm -hmm. wow. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally, totally. And um, if you have a little bit of time, just uh, briefly, you, you moved on from Mars Hill, thankfully, now being out in Virginia, but you are working on a new book you have told us about uh, someone who has very recently been in the news in the last couple of months and was a huge supporter of Donald Trump, 
and also was the president of Liberty University, a, a massive uh, evangelical college there in uh, Lynchburg, Virginia, uh, Jerry Falwell Jr. Um, I actually met Jerry Falwell Sr. in person. I went down to, I didn't attend Liberty, but I went down with a friend in probably 2002 or 2003 and went to Thomas Road Baptist Church and uh, Jerry Falwell Sr. was preaching and went up and I was kind of actually amazed, uh, like I could just walk up after the service and just talk to him, like shook his hand, he had very big hands. Um, he said he founded the school um, for people to be champions and warriors for Christ, and uh, he passed away in 2007. Jerry Falwell Jr. was named president, and uh, there was a few scandals that kind of erupted <laughs> with uh, Jerry Falwell Jr. and uh, Becky this past year. Do you want to talk about... Um, your new book a little bit, uh, like your approach and, and your interest in this topic? Well, actually my new book is right now about conspiracy theories. Um, mm. It's actually, the working title right now is Conspiracies of Whiteness. Um, oh. And yeah, so I'm looking at different, different ways of thinking about conspiracy theories um, and how they're basically activating um, physical forms of violence against people who are other than, right? Um, but, the article that I'm thinking through right now about Jerry Falwell Jr. And I'm, I'm trying to, I'm, I'm still in the process of thinking about my exact approach, but right now I really want to break down this. I mean, I know the title of your show is culture war veterans. Um, and I think that thinking about, and it goes back to my dissertation too, really thinking about culture war and how that's playing out today right? There's something different, obviously, going on. It's not just as simple as, you know, people are for or against abortion, people are for or against gay marriage. And what happened with the sex scandal, and I would put the ass because a lot of people think of that Instagram photo where Jerry Powell Jr. is standing there with, I guess, his wife's assistant is what he said, right? And it's that trailer boys park um the zippers are down um yeah 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 you know yeah exactly the zippers are down i mean i want to make the argument that that's actually not sexual there's something else going on there and i want to really think about our reactions to that in terms of and just the culture war sort of dynamic writ large as so much more about our political identities differently um and how it's not about morality, <laughs> you know, basically. So that culture warrior stuff, like for Jerry Falwell Sr., I would argue, yes, for sure. I mean, the moral majority, I mean, that was his deal. Junior, and, and I mean, he was still a businessman, but with Junior's case, right, looking at his him as a case study, um, and then we could argue Trump as well, and I'm trying to tie those two together right now in this article, um, you know, the evangelical support for him is, is not moralistic, right? And people might say that, oh, well, he's got the Supreme Court justices in, you know, that will support, you know, the knocking down of Roe v. Wade, for example, right? And put it in very stark terms. And he's put all these justices in place where our sense of what, you know, morality is, is going to be actually um, ensconced through the law. I don't buy that, okay, as, <laughs> as really what's going on here. And so what I'm trying to think about is, is how the culture war isn't really about that. You know, it, if it ever was, it's certainly not about that anymore. 
um, and trying to really open up the scope of what that means. And, you know, with the, with the Instagram photo and with the, the sex scandal that happened with his wife and the pool attendant in Miami, I mean, those are very racialized too. Those are also gendered in certain ways. Um, you know, I mean, that whole thing about your wife being your porn star arguably was playing out in the very dynamic with Becky Falwell, um, you know, junior, and then um, the pool attendant, whose name I can't remember off the top of my head right now, but, you know, he's literally watching his wife have sex with another man. But at the same time, he gets called a cuck, right? Yeah. So it's very emasculating when it becomes public. And this is also where something like laughter, I think, comes into play, whereby, you know, Jerry Falwell Jr. had done all of these things that were horribly racist, that were not good for the business model of the university, um, that got a lot, got him in a lot of trouble with a lot of different people, with the virus and everything and opening up the university. So there were a lot of scandals that built up to these, you know, sex scandals. Um, but there's something else going on there racially in terms of gender. Um, and then also in terms of just being laughed at, you know, I mean, I can't tell you how many times I, I refrain from doing anything along these lines, but how many times I opened up Facebook and saw jokes, right, made about Paul Jr., the pool attendant. And of course, he was continually called the pool boy um, and, and uh, Becky Falwell. And that was really stunning to me about how much I saw that. And it's the same thing with Trump now losing the election. Like how many times have I seen loser, 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 right? And there's this sense of winning and the sense of also not being laughed at, right? That has some real power that goes beyond like, you know, your, your typical like, well, I'm for or against this issue because my moral, you know, worldview tells me that this is right or wrong. Um, and there's something I, and again, I'm still thinking through this, but there's some kind of good versus evil dynamic that's playing out here as well. Um, but not necessarily about morality. It's like just winning and losing, like you're saying. It's like yeah. who's going to dominate or control. I think exactly. Falwell's exactly. personal scandals threaten the university's power. Uh, it, as as our arbiters of, of of power in DC representing evangelicals. Absolutely. I think, that, I think that's really the, the sin of his that there that got him on the outs. Absolutely. And I think you know that's the problem with what's happening with Trump now too is right. I mean going back to that notion of we don't want to be looked at as losers in this. We want to still retain, performatively speaking, right? That sense of we're still running the show here, politically speaking. We're still in power, right? Um, and that's why, he, you know, for some people, he still has to be the winner, right? Um, so there's something to that that I'm playing with um, that I think is interesting, or at least, yeah, I think it's interesting. <laughs> we'll see how it comes out in the article. You all can read it and tell me later. <laughs> yeah, no, that that sounds fascinating. As as does the book. I'm very interested in uh, conspiracy theories, specifically about how easily evangelicals latch on to them and let those define reality for them. Um, that it's 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 been really really a joy to talk to you, Jessica. 
and I really look forward to the article and, and the book. And, you know, if, if you want to come on again and talk about either of those things when they're out in the world, we'd love to do that. Um, for now, is, is there anything that you'd like to direct uh, listeners toward of your work or, or if you know where the article may be published, uh, where to be on the lookout for it? Yeah, um, so as far as that article is concerned, I mean, there is a special issue of a journal, religion journal that I'm thinking of right now, but um, as far as work that's really out right now, there's a couple of things online on my academia.edu page, which is kind of like the Facebook for academics. Um, I'm really, I, I'm, I'm a Gen Xer, so I really don't like marketing myself very much. Like I feel very weird about self-promotion. But I do have this Facebook for academics. So if you just if you just um, Google Jessica Johnson Academia or JessicaJohnsonAcademia.edu, you'll find um, articles that are more bite-sized, you know, of my work on Mars Hill. And I would say that um, the Porn Again Christian article, and it's Porn Again Christian, uh, Mark Driscoll. Um, pornification of the pulpit. That's a good article for sort of a, a really nice, quick read um, that's very digestible and accessible about the sexualization process that I saw occurring in the early stages of my work. And then the another article that's gotten a lot of traction on that site is the Mega Churches Evangelical Complex or Industrial Complex article um, about celebrity pastors. That's also on there. And um, it's a bit about Mars Hill. It's also a little bit about um, Judah Smith. So mm. I do something about, right, um, the media complex um, that has built up around evangelicalism. Um, and then for the conspiracy theory stuff, I wrote a piece um, that's actually available online for free. It's not on my academia site, but um, if you just Googled um, self-radicalization of white men, you'll see that. All right, um, and that is that. That's kind of a, a precursor to the book. It's a kernel of that book, um, and it's about PizzaGate. So I was writing about PizzaGate, and 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 sort of drawing connections to a bunch of things I saw going on with media, but then also um, Charlottesville, and um, you know what happened in Charlottesville in 2017 when a bunch of neo-Nazis and white supremacists descended um, on that space. So so I believe it or not, draw that all together. And that's kind of, you know, the next conspiracy of a whiteness, the book to be. Um, but I wanted to play with this notion of self-radicalization and make the argument that no, <laughs> this, is, this is a misnomer. If you're online, you're interacting with not only other people through that technology, but with the technology itself. Um, and it really, I, I, again, it's got a lot of traction. People seem to dig it. So, um, so I- I'll Check I, that I, out for sure. Yeah. yeah, we'll check it out. We'll link to that, uh, those articles in show notes as well. Uh, but I echo Zach's thoughts. Thank you so much for giving us your time and coming on. This was a, a great conversation. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed talking with you both. I really appreciate it. Awesome. It's good to see you again, Zach. It's really nice to meet you, Dave. You too. Yeah, nice to meet you, Jessica. Thank you. All right. Take care. And that is another episode of the Veterans of Cultural War podcast. A very special thank you to professor and author Jessica Johnson for coming by the pod to talk with us about Mars Hill Church and more. You should all go out and get her book, 
biblical porn, Affect, Labor, and Pastor Mark Driscoll's Evangelical Empire. Also, be on the lookout for future articles and uh, future books coming from Jessica Johnson. You can find Zach and I on Twitter. Uh, Zach is at Muzach, M-U-Z-A-C-H. I am at Dave J. Lester. If you have thoughts on today's episode or any ideas for future episodes that you would like to hear, you can email us at vocwpod at gmail.com. Make sure you pick up a vinyl copy of Zach's Christmas album, Darkest Time of Year, by going to muzak.bandcamp.com. Pick up a copy of the album there. You can also read my occasional blogging at www.dangerouswhope.wordpress.com. Music and logo are done by the one and only Zach. And also, please be sure to subscribe to our podcast. Go to where you'd like to get your podcast from. Leave us a, a rating and a review that helps others find our podcast. And we would greatly appreciate it. After this episode, we will take a little bit of a break as season one has been completed. We will be back in the new year, 2021, and hopefully a much better year than 2020 with new episodes, new guests, and new topics to cover. Thank you so much for listening and for supporting Veterans of Culture War podcast. <laughs>